Season 2, Episode 4 of Speaking the Truth with your host, Anthony Brown. Speaking the Truth is brought to you by Associates Life Coaching and Counseling. If you're feeling blue and don't know what to do, call Anthony Brown and he will help you. Dial 281-545-5003 for more information or go to www.associateslifecoachingandcounseling.com. Speaking the truth is also brought to you by Anyone Can Travel. If you feel like going on vacation and you want a discount and you want the best uh, that offer that uh, life can bring, call David Weefall at 832-577-1735 or email him at any, the number one, can travel at gmail.com. That's anyone can travel at gmail.com. Any, the number one, can travel at gmail.com. So today on Speaking the Truth, I'll be talking about different things as it relates to happiness. If you can remember on season one, my very first episode, I talked about what inspired me to do this podcast. And this podcast was inspired by helping people to talk about issues that will help people to find happiness or things that will make a person's life whole. And sometimes I'm having a little fun. I have fun while doing it. Like the last episode uh, was a serious episode about sexual health, but at the same time I had fun. I know it was a little different. So when, uh, when I uh, get with, uh, get on that particular topic, uh, we're going to have a little fun, but this particular episode is going to be more serious. So this past week in the media, you have heard of suicide of two celebrities. First, you heard of Kate Spade and her uh, suicide that was successful and her, her leaving her suicide note to her daughter, ex, uh, allegedly explaining the incident and explaining why she did it and how she uh, killed herself by strangulation. And then how her sister related her suicide to her being depressed and her dark side that, that many of us did not know. The other one that was really surprising to a lot of people was Anthony Bourdain, who um, was, was found in his hotel of strangulation in Paris. And he's another person that... Um, that it seemed like he had it all. However, for whatever reason, he decided to uh, end his life. So briefly, I wanted to talk about suicide, and I wanted to get into my next topic, which um, which ends up on a uh, a lighter note. But I wanted to kind to kind of tackle this uh, idea of suicide and happiness, and how we prevent this from happening. An interesting um, article. Uh, in the uh, Daily News, and it talks about Kate, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain in reference to suicide and how coincidentally both of them had happened on the same week. 
and it talks about mental illness and how that one thing we can be sure of that mental is illness, even though it's a serious matter, that it definitely isn't a transmittable disease. And one person committing suicide may not make it a ripple effect for another person to commit suicide. According to several studies, according to Daily News, publicity surrounding a suicide has been repeatedly linked to a subsequent increase in the act, or particularly among young people. After Marilyn Monroe died in August of, of 1962, the cause listed as probable suicide, the nation mourned publicly. In the month that followed, there was sweeping news coverage, political memorials, and a 12% increase in suicide. That month saw an additional 303 suicide in comparison to the year prior to a study published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. When Robin Williams died in 2014, the world reacted similarly. The comedian's image was everywhere. Details of his ultimately passing spawned countless news articles and think pieces. His death is also similarly associated with 10% increase in suicide across the United States. Uh, the phenomenon is often referred to as suicide contagion, defined by the Department of Health and Human Services as an increase in suicides due to the exposure to suicide or suicide behaviors with one family, one peer group, or through media reports of suicide. Now, when you um, study psychology, and, and it is a theory and, uh, in psychology that it puts, if you are the child of a parent who committed suicide, it puts it at very high risk. You put yourself at, at the child is put at very high risk of possibly uh, being high risk for suicide. A lot of times we mimic our parents on how we deal, how we deal with stress and um, because we learn what we see our parents do. For example, my dad, God bless his soul, the way he dealt with stress was to smoke cigarettes. And uh, so as an adult, as a young adult, and my family don't even know this, they'll probably be hearing this for the first time. What I did, and I hid this from my family, is that I smoked from age 18 to 25. And even though it was sporadic, it was how I knew or how I was taught, or what I saw, uh, how um, to deal with stress. However, I grew out that phase, and um, and I guess having allergy issues kind of scared me, but I definitely grew out that age and uh, was able to find different ways to deal with stress that were more, more healthy. So how can we, are there really ways to prevent suicide? How can we notice suicide? A lot of times, we can't particularly notice when a person is of at risk of it because it's very subtle things that a person can do that do um, to uh, just contemplating suicide. And sometimes people reach out for help, help, and they tell you, but a lot of times it's very subtle. One thing that a person may do is get, 
say for example, they get their house in order. They become very organized, and they weren't organized in the past. Giving things away, uh, of course, depressed mood could be part of it, or they may hide that part of it, part of it, and you may never know. I had a particular friend who uh, could be, who committed suicide, and this particular friend decided to, who was a person that was very, uh, he was a, a, a an accountant. And he was, or or it was in finance, but he was very good person with money. He budgeted. He did not spend his money. Uh, always spent his money very responsible. Uh, so he had a vehicle, and he had no reason to want to sell his vehicle because it was paid off, and he kept very good well of it, very good care of it. However, before he committed suicide, a few months prior to that. He bought a brand new car, top of line, all all bells and whistles, and this was one of the things that he was going to enjoy was his car before he died, and that was one of the very subtle things because I was really outside his character to buy a new car, and I and I just figured that he he was doing something different, you know. Uh, I did not think of it as uh, something that um, that he was going to do to. Um, who knew that he was going to do that just to enjoy it? So before he, when he did uh, commit suicide, he left specific notes to his loved ones of what to do, this and that. So no one wins with suicide. Uh, suicide is a very selfish act, but most of the times it is uh, surrounding mental health. But no one wins the it's a selfish act because the, the, those of us that are living and left behind are the ones who are the real sufferers. So no one wins when it comes to suicide at all. So according to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, we can all prevent suicide. The lifeline provides uh, it's a toll-free number. Uh, you can call it's, you, and you, it's, you call it very confidential for support. The number is 1-800-273-8255 if you feel that you need someone to talk to. You don't have to be a mental health professional to help someone in your life that may be struggling, and you can learn five steps that you can use to help a love a person through this crisis. Uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provide free and confidential emotional support to people in suicide crisis or emotional distress 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're committed to improving crisis services and advanced suicide prevention by empowering individuals, advancing professional best practices, and building awareness. So one thing that I do know is that mental, the access to mental health it's something that's always been an issue in this country. And in this country, we need to do more about access and mental health. One thing that they're trying to start up is to house mental health professionals in the same doctor's offices as doctors so they can just do a, a referral. Mental health and physical health tie in hand in hand. So if you're going to take care of your body, it's very important to take care of your mind. And it's also important to take care of your soul as well. So when you take care of your, your, your mind by seeing a therapist, taking care of your soul can be on a community level 
or it could be uh, something that's dealing with a power greater than you. It doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be uh, anything religious. Any power that's greater than you that will help you deal with, it can be nature. It can be a doorknob. But anything that's greater than you that could will help you live your life to the fullest. So it's important that those of us that aren't happy, that we find our happy. And it's a process to find your happy. And everyone is really responsible for finding their happiness if you're not happy. And if you don't know how to do that, there are services, there's ways to go about doing that. But being happy and feeling whole is very, very important. Some people find happiness through uh, spirituality and one way of of expressing your spirituality may be through um, through religion. And religion being, uh, organized religion that is, being a um, a practice that is not as relevant that it used to be. Organized religion is losing many, many members uh, as part of its membership in record numbers. A lot of people find hurt through religion. And a lot of people, and they, or they find out that it's not, it's not as relevant. And through people finding their hurt through religion could be because they don't feel that they belong. They feel that they've been rejected. They feel like they've been judged. They feel like they may not be able to relate. They may have been told that they don't fit in. So there, because there has been a lot of people who have, have left the church, there's a a church organization here in Houston, a church store here in Houston that uh, I uh, found out about and uh, initially found out about when I started working on my doctorate ministry in pastoral care, uh, which, which is what I'm currently working on. I uh, recently went back to that particular major. And pastoral care being counseling and theology mixed together, uh, which is a perfect uh, doctor for me by having a master's in counseling, a master's in theology. And with this church start, um, I was originally uh, fascinated by this church start by um, me thinking that it could be a focal point of, a focal point for my uh, project. But it was such a unique experience where it is a church for and not really a church but a church if if you understand if I I know that's not making sense but of a very untraditional church but it's a place where people can find their way back to or to religion and not be so churchy not be so judged where they can come uniquely themselves and and not part of a church that is rigid and full of dogma 
where they f- may feel that they're not a part of. So I had the opportunity to opportunity to um, interview uh, Reverend Dee Dee Fennell of Darnell Fennell of Just Love Church. So the interview that I, uh, you're about to listen to would be my interview uh, from uh, uh, Darnell Fennell of Just Love Church. Uh, how you doing, Darnell? I'm doing well, man. How about yourself? All right. All right. Um, so Darnell is a, uh, a pastor of a new church start in Houston called Just Love, and it's a very, very unique uh, uh experience or ministry uh and uh so i thought i I would talk about that because it's something that's never seen before and many people in the uh, religious community are very excited about um where this uh i guess i guess it's not really an experiment but it could be looked upon as an experiment where this experience uh will uh will will take everyone so um first of all uh would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a product of Houston, Texas. Uh grew up here, uh Southwest Houston. Uh grew up in a uh, very loving home. Uh deeply church, grew up in the Baptist tradition, uh or part of some community Baptist churches here in Houston. Uh, went on to college, University of Houston. Uh, and then moved on to seminary in the Bay Area at Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. Uh, that's kind of the condensed uh, storyline, kind of just a little backdrop about at least knowing the context that's kind of shaped me. Uh, just a Southern boy uh, who has been deeply influenced by church. Everyone who just from a young age had a deep interest in in church. Not having language to necessarily articulate that interest, but had a deep interest in just all the aesthetics of church, especially that of preaching. Uh, okay. And that did shapes okay. uh, who I am so, today. So let's talk just very briefly about the uh, seminary in Berkeley. Uh, what what uh, what uh, religious tradition is that school uh, known for? Uh religion is an interdenominational school, so we are affiliated with the Disciples of Christ Christian Church, mm-hmm. uh, the United Church of Christ, as well as United Methodist Church. So it's the interdenomination of the Okay, okay. That's, 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 that's unique. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, uh, for those, you, you know, uh, for my listeners who've heard me before, I've at times talk about, uh, my own father, and my own father also went to an interdenominational seminary, but, uh, his, his that seminary, is in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, is a, a, a black seminary called uh, ITC, International yeah. Theological Center. And so people who, people of faith who go, attend those type of schools uh, have a very rich experience. They have a very open mind, and they're very welcoming of people from different traditions. So uh, I, this, I, I have been knowing you, but... I, this this is the first time realizing that the school you went to, to was actually a interdenominational school, so that that speaks volumes. That that really that makes sense to me that that you attend a school like that. Yeah, okay. definitely. Uh, very okay. enriching. Okay. 
So let's, let's fast forward. Um, how did you come up with the idea of just love? What moved you to that particular idea? And what what's your what's your vision of just love? Well, certainly uh, my lived experiences as one, like I said, I grew up deeply in church, uh, but also had a crisis of faith early on around 17, 18 years old, largely around uh, sexuality as one who understood themselves to be a gay man but not willing to accept that uh, due to teachings and tradition of the church. So my crisis starts there. And at that moment when I just kind of came to grips with who I was and could no longer really reconcile with this kind of angry God, uh, God who was definitely unhospitable to people like myself, kind of had a crisis walk away moment and thought that was the only way church could be. Uh, that was the only image of God that I had. And it wasn't until I went to undergrad, studied religious studies, as well as graduate school and went into studying, uh, uh, Christianity more from an academic standpoint that I began to reclaim faith. Uh, and in doing so, I moved to the Bay Area and also beginning to see people who looked like me, uh, who loved like me, and who were leading churches and who had been on the front lines uh, during the AIDS crisis, people whose names I didn't even know of and probably would have never known unless I went to Berkeley. And these people restored my sense of calling that uh, what I had put away uh, was actually uh, something that I, I took back out and just love uh, comes out of a sense of I wanted to return to Houston to start a church knowing that everybody wouldn't have the opportunity I had to come to the Bay Area or the New York cities and be able to experience uh, progressive faith so I thought Houston is a great place although it's still in the south it is a place that has great potential so I wanted to create a space that would offer hope to those who thought there were no space for them in, in, in their context. So Just Love idea mission is to be a community uh, that takes seriously loving yourself, loving God, and loving your neighbor. And, of course, that seems very simplistic, uh, but I think that is, that's deep, uh, deep work to be able to actively love in a way that creates a more just and loving world for all God's people. So all this originates with myself and what it means to be marginalized myself by church. Okay. Knowing that. So, go ahead. I, I, I cut you off. Okay. I'm sorry. No, so, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm good. Go ahead. Okay. So, you are uh, a man of the cloth, per se, who was called in a Baptist tradition and at the same time, uh, had a, a, uh, identified yourself as uh, uh, gay. How did you? So I, I just assuming that that was a very conflicting experience being a Southern Baptist in in Houston, Texas. Yes, sir. Okay. So is it fair to say that you felt very rejected by your own faith? Prior to going to uh, Berkeley, you felt very rejected by your own faith? Yeah, I felt rejected by my faith. Uh, I felt rejected by God. Uh, as my faith had articulated this understanding of God, uh, so definitely felt like 
there was no room for me and I was just going to go a different route and my route was going to be I was going to go into some type of social services because at heart uh, mm-hmm. always, I know that I'm a pastor and one who cares deeply for people so as a way of appeasing that I said I'll go into social services uh, to, to get as close as I can to still being in a, in a form of ministry okay so fast forward to uh, graduating from uh, just seminary and coming back to Houston and, and having an idea uh, or a vision in mind of creating this community, um, how did you go about doing that? Well, uh, I had relationships with people, you know, of course, prior to going to Berkeley, and I can recall distinctively a couple of individuals who would check in with me and be like, man, you got to come back to Houston. Uh, as it relates to we need you to come here and create space because they felt they didn't have space. Uh, so that further confirmed the need to create just love as I have people who are living on the ground in Houston while I'm in Berkeley who are calling mm-hmm. and saying this is needed. Uh, so from there, I found like a cool group of people that we began to kind of, I shared the vision with them and we began to have conversations and, and be in prayer about what we were trying to do. And as soon as I came back to Houston in 2014, uh, we kind of hit the ground running. And it's kind of a blur after that. But once we got in on the ground and found the space, uh, we just kind of started meeting bi-weekly uh, to invite people to the table to a space of uh, love and inclusion with a deep heart for uh, faith and justice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I know when I first uh, visited Just Love, I visited Just Love in terms of being interested from an academic standpoint. And when I went, I never have seen anything like that before where you see gay people and straight people and white people and black people and people from all different religious traditions and experiences. And, and and the music and, and music that was uh, contemporary, but at the same time made to feel appropriate for a church environment uh, in a uh, gymnasium of a, uh, of, of, a of, of a large uh, disciples of Christ church. And he said, "It's something. It just blew my mind." And. Uh, Did it form in the in the way that that you thought it was going to form? Was that your original vision? Uh, I must say that uh, I learned about two and a half years in that uh, we can't be deeply attached to the outcome. Uh, we have to just be faithful to what we're called to do. So I must say, it's not what I wrote out especially when it comes to even the interracial component of Just Love. I imagine Just Love being a primarily uh, black congregation. And uh, I know the justice piece was definitely central, but I didn't know, you know, when I came back to Houston, this was during the height of Black Lives Matter. And when you're having a worship service, we're starting to meet for worship, and what's happening in the news, like Mike Brown being killed, and Nick Summer, Sandra Bland, all these uh, very heightened moments in our consciousness around race. Uh, I had to be able to speak truth, uh, in those spaces. And from there, 
I recognized that there were people who were willing, people who were not black people, white folks, who were willing to be in community and be in solidarity uh, together. So that's what I knew what, what we were doing was was sacred and kind of blew my mind. Like, wow, we got white folks who are who are buying into black leadership and being able to be authentic about our experiences and our feelings, and this is not causing a sense of division. Mm-hmm. How does uh, social justice to you fit into the religious experience? Is uh, for anyone who may think that it it, it doesn't fit, it, it, it doesn't fit that social justice is one thing, and a religious experience is a different thing. What, what do you, how do you respond to that? Well, I get that a lot, and I would definitely say as a Christian, most Christians would definitely agree that uh, Jesus and whose footsteps we follow is about people, and everybody would agree with that. And we recognize that people are impacted by policies and politics. You can't separate yourself from being impacted by the effects of policy. So if we recognize Jesus cares about people, then we must also know Jesus cares about policies that affect people, especially where it affects them in harmful ways. So uh, that that's my invitation or explanation, rather, to my understanding of justice, that God is one who's deeply concerned about people relate in a relational way and God can't just be concerned about your soul and not be concerned about your body and your lived experiences and how injustices affect black and brown people and women and gay and lesbian people. God is deeply concerned about these things because God is deeply concerned about people. Mm-hmm. Okay. How uh does just love speak to uh people that come from different religious backgrounds and people who have left their faith because the church hurt or the lack of understanding or feeling abandoned by the church. How does just love, how can just love meet the needs of those people? Well, primarily just love gives people space to be. Uh, One thing that was a great gift that I got when I was in the Bay area, being able to serve in a church where I come from a very rigid tradition, and I really was still trying to, I guess, convince myself that I was still committed to church, and these people gave me space to just exist. So my question, my pain, uh, my joy, all of it was able to be welcomed in that space. And that's where I seek to always provide a sense of hospitality to all of who a person is, their questions, their hurts, uh, not pushing them, uh, but merely allowing them simply to be where they are in this moment. So we offer that in addition to a community of people knowing that they're not alone, that we have people who have left various traditions, Mormonism and uh, Baptists and other uh, Christian denominations, that they are not alone. So they can simply be, and they can be in company with people who have also made that journey and who are still in process. So therefore they know that they have hope. There are others who are who have taken the same walk. Okay. 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 What are some uh, some uh, challenges you see in uh, in the church start? Oh, do you well, consider just love as church? What do you, what do you, what do you define that? Oh, definitely, just love as a church. Uh, church being the gathering of of God's people. 
that's what we seek to be in church as a people, not as a place. I think many people understand church as a as a building, and just love seeks to challenge that to know uh, we are the people in in the world who are justice seekers, who are people who love radically, uh, people who have deep compassion and empathy. Uh, but as far as the challenges to new church start, just to be real, we still operate in a very much a capitalist society and it takes capital uh, to get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the greatest challenges is you're not attached to some large denominational funding, and that varies across traditions. Uh, that it can be a challenge just to, to kickstart yourself. Uh, you're not trying to kind of scrape pennies and things like that. So that's been one of my biggest challenges is the the whole kickstart moment. I wish we had uh, more funding uh, mm-hmm. to do that, as, as some traditions are able to, you know, pay for people for X amount of years just to kind of get themselves afloat. And we didn't really have that. And also the challenge of creating the type of church that we have that you run into the you run into the opposition of, oh, that's not a church, or, oh, this doesn't feel like church because people are so accustomed to mm-hmm. one way of seeing church. And what we are doing is inviting them in to uh, not simply a new way, but an expanded way. So what they have experienced is church, and this also is a, what church is as well. Okay, okay. So, um, where do you, where's your vision for the future, Just Love? I envision, most importantly, uh, people who are, whose faith leads them to be engaged in the world around them in meaningful ways. Uh, that, that, that alone is the, the central, uh, hope of this pastor is that in a world where so many people of faith can be apathetic, and turn a blind eye to injustice around them and see faith as some kind of self-seeking thing that people will, and just love will see faith as my faith compels me to engage the world around me, to use my voice to advocate for change, and in doing so I'm creating what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Uh, so that's that's primary. And as a result of that, from an institutional standpoint, I would love to see us being self-sustained, in a way that's a new model, a model that sees us not just as a building that's only a one-time use space, but that we have a multi-purpose space that serves the community uh, day in and day out, even beyond our worship experience, that is a witness to our mission and our work in the world. Uh, So those are the two components. Engage faith and a... uh, a, tangible way we live their faith out uh, through some kind of multi-purpose space. Okay. Okay. So if uh, someone wants to uh, visit Just Love that's in the Houston area, uh, what is what are the times and places where they can come? Uh, Just Love meets every Saturday at 5 p.m. Uh, we meet for about an hour and 15 minutes, never anything later than that. Very laid-back atmosphere. So... Uh, people wear what they want to wear. Most people, you know, are running errands or doing things. So they come to worship for an hour and 15 minutes and then go back and continue their evening. Uh, meet at 1601 Sunset Boulevard, but our information for Just Love is on justlovehouston.org. Uh, okay. 
And if someone wants to uh, support Just Love financially, they can uh, do so over the same website? Yes, they can. Okay. Click okay. Give to Love. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for uh, uh, talking to me about Just Love. Uh, like I was saying that I, I ran across Just Love. I saw it, I believe, on, on Facebook, and I was just curious of what, what it was all about. And I was just blown away about what I experienced. And um, blown away about how the theme of Cheers was being played, and how it was so appropriate at the time to hear the uh, the, the things that Cheers uh, played. In fact, it was my ringtone at one time. Oh wow! <laughs> and, and you were such an eloquent preacher at that particular sermon. Uh, it brought you actually brought tears to my eyes my very first time hearing you uh, preach, and it was about acceptance, about not feeling accepted, but acceptance, and, and about, I don't know if you remember, but you used your grandmother as an example, and uh, and it had, it had had a story of the, uh, I think it was orange, an orange ribbon tied around the tree. Yeah, that nature. yeah mm-hmm. that was a powerful sermon of being of acceptance. Uh, yeah. uh, and, it, and the way it was tied into the scripture, so I remember that, like that. It was yesterday, so that that's uh, even though I come sporadically, but it's always been a place that I will want, I uh, enjoy coming and experiencing. And I want to encourage anyone from any background or any belief system, um, or to come and just experience something different. Yeah, definitely welcome everybody. What a great place. Everybody feels welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anthony. According to an article on the Huffington Post uh, by Stephen Ress, uh, he states that there are four reasons for the decline of religion. Religious participation is declining among Americans, even though uh, religion is still very popular. According to the uh, latest religious landscape study by the Pew Research Forum, the percentage of Americans who believe in God, attend religious services, and pray daily has declined significantly during the last eight years, especially among adolescents. The drop in religious participation is larger among whites and less among blacks. One group bucking the trend is political conservatives who show no decline. The Pew Survey document the rise in the secularism, but don't attempt to explain it. Psychologist Jean Twinge and her colleagues have cited a rise in narcissism and self-centeredness among young people, but the, in truth, there are no hard data scientifically linking narcissism to the decline in religious participation. Could something else be behind the important shift? As a researcher who has spent 30 years studying human motivation, he believes we embrace or reject religion based on our values. He sees four possible psychological reasons for the recent rise in secularism in America based on decades of studying what makes people tick. Surveying 100,000 people, decades ago, they began by creating a list of every possible goal or motive they could think of. When asked people to rate to extend to 
which each goal motivated them. The respondents indicated how much they love to learn, for example, play sports or do things their way. They, they surveyed about 100,000 people from many cultures in North America, Europe, and Asia. As described in the book, Who Am I? The 16 basic desires to motivate our behavior and define our personality. It was discovered that humans share 16 basic desires. There are acceptance, curiosity, eating, family, honor, idealism, independence, order, physical activity, power, romance, saving social contact, status, tranquility, and vengeance. His colleagues believe that everything that moves us and human motivates express one or more of these 16 basic desires. For the past 10 years, they have been learning how their desires play out in religion and spirituality. In the book, The 16 Strivings for God, The New Psychology of Religious Experience, it was suggested that virtually every religious belief and practice expresses one of the 16 basic desires or two or more of them acting together. The most importantly desires may be curiosity and social contact, for example, but partners' most important need may be acceptance and order. They have a, they have a choice of satisfying uh, their desires through religion and spirituality or through secular institutions. The believer may satisfy his or her needs for acceptance by embracing God as Savior, whereas the non-believer might embrace, say, positively psychology. The believer may satisfy a need for status by embracing the idea of having been created by God, whereas a non-believer might pursue wealth and materialism to feel important. Religion rises and falls in popularity depending on how well it satisfies or needs versus the secular alternatives viewed in the light for major shifts in secular cultures may be behind the decline in religious affiliation. Organized, versus spiritual, organized religion versus spirituality. So there's a philosopher by the name of William James who some consider the father of American psychology and a psychiatrist called June who developed the idea of extrovert and introvert were among those who embraced mysticism or a sense of the absolute but had little use for organized religion. James taught us that to search for the mystical personal God that meets our needs as individuals, John wrote that organized religion gets in the way of the true religious encounter. Historically, mysticism, or what some call spirituality, has been associated with this disinterest in organized religion. More Americans than ever are saying that they are spiritual but not religious, in the 2012 survey by the Pew Religion and Public Life Pro Project, nearly a fifth of those polls said that they were not religiously affiliated. The number has increased to 23% in the last study. People seem to be shifting their search for meaning by looking within rather than to the heavens. This may be motivated a decline of interest in organized religions. Tribalism versus humanitarianism. A common way 
of honoring one's ancestors is to embrace their moral code and religion. Historically, loyalty to the tribe and clan has motivated participation in organized religion. Freud called, atten Freud, uh, called attention to the tribal roots of religion in his essay, Totem and Taboo. French socialist Emile Durkheim observed the role of religion in communal bonding. The global economy may have significantly increased social contact among people from different cultures and religions. As we learn the similarities of people everywhere, I suggest that many of us may be less inclined to think of people as Christian, Muslims, Hindus, and Jews, or more inclined towards thinking of people of faith as similar regardless of religious affiliation. Globalism may be driving a rise in interest in interfaith activities. As we relate more to people globally, we may realize as never before that our that ours is not the only true religion. Traditional versus non-traditional families. Historically, organized religion have relied heavily on the family to raise religious children and recruit new church members. Today, we have a major restructuring of the family with fewer than half of us of U.S. kids living in a traditional family. This change in family structure may be res responsible for less successful religious training and recruitment of young people. Organized religion may put formulas and symbols less relevant to children growing up in a non-traditional families and versus traditional ones. The Bible, for example, does not address children of divorced parents. These children may feel uncomfortable with certain religious teachings, such as God's disapproval of divorce. They may think God disapproves of their parents of them. Trust versus loss of confidence in institutions. The internet has given us unprecedented access to inform about our institutions, many times exposing their darker sides. As we learn more about our society and its institutions, we sometimes become painfully aware of hypocrisy and scandal. That may be one important reason that confidence in many of our institutions, from business to schools to government, is below historical norms. Confidence in religion is, in particularly, is an, an all-time low, partly because of religious scandals in the Catholic Church and elsewhere. Such scandals encourage cynicism among many observers, regardless of their religious affiliation. Interestingly, the confidence of the Catholics seemed less affected. It is believed that these four factors have played a role in making organized religion less adapt at meeting people's basic desires. That doesn't mean this will always be so. Religion may change and adapt as it has before to better meet our basic human needs. Whether it remains an, an open question, uh, says Steve Rest, professor emeritus psychology of Ohio State University. So this article was originally published on the conversation, uh, and um, it is currently uh, in the uh, Huffington Post. So as I close out this episode of Speaking the Truth, I would like to encourage you to like and subscribe this episode if you are looking at it on Apple Podcast. When you like and subscribe and comment, 
more people are able to uh, see this program and able to listen to this program. And uh, and also, if uh, you can listen to this program on uh, various outlets, uh, of course, such as State Apple Podcasts, you can listen to it on CastBox, Deezer, Google Play, Our Heart Radio, Radio Public, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also now on Blog Talk Radio. If you feel that you would like to uh, have an idea of a show or have a comment, please email me at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. Also, if you want to become a subscriber, Look at the link that, of pa- the Patreon link below and become a subscriber on Patreon to become a, a subscriber of the show. It, you can be you can do that as little as one dollar a month. Also, you will see the Instant Tango link if you would like instant life coaching and tariffs apply. I would like to also thank you for. Listening, supporting the show, I have almost coming upon uh, two thousand listeners. Uh, most of my listeners being in the United States, uh, and in in Sweden, Australia, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, France, Japan, Peru, and the Philippines. I would like to thank you for being listening for the show. I have listeners in the Houston area, surrounding areas, San Francisco, Ashburn, San Jose. Centerville, Graysonville, San Antonio, and South Jordan. Thank you for listening to supporting the show. Also, if you um, would need mental health advice, feel free to, to write Dear Anthony at Speaking the Truth. Email me at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. Till the next time you hear my voice, be well.